0: Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular Continuing Medical Education podcast. Join us each week to discuss the most pressing topics in cardiology and gain valuable insights that can be directly applied to your practice.
1: Good afternoon, everybody. We are coming to you on the podcast interview with the experts from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And I'm Kyle Klarich, one of the cardiovascular consultants in Rochester, and it is my great pleasure to be able to interview Dr. Paul Friedman, the chair of cardiology in the department uh, in Rochester, and Dr. Etia, Zaki Etia, who is a PhD in our department for artificial intelligence, the co-chair, co-director of AI and CV. We have a really interesting topic today, artificial intelligence used to detect heart disease using wearables and this specifically looking at the Mayo Clinic Apple Watch study, which was recently completed. I think I'll start out by just uh, posing for our audience to all be on the same playing field. What is an AI ECG? Dr. Friedman, would you like to take a first stab at that one?
2: Sure, of course. And then uh, we can have the AI expert fill in the blanks. All of us have learned to read ECG since medical school, and there's a lot of important information we can get out from interpreting the ECG, arrhythmias, acute MI, a whole slew of things that all of us in cardiology would be familiar with, in, in fact, in medicine. But it turns out there's a lot of additional information that's on the 12-lead ECG that humans just can't read. And the way this was sort of initially developed, one of our first projects was seeing if we could identify whether there was left ventricular dysfunction, a low ejection fraction from an ECG reliably. And the way that was done was we fed in approximately 50,000 ECGs into a type of artificial intelligence called a convolutional neural network. And initially, each ECG was labeled with an ejection fraction number. And you would ask the computer, in essence, I mean, it was all algorithmically driven, but you would ask it, what's the ejection fraction on this ECG? computer had no idea, so it would guess. And they might guess 30%, we'd say, no, it's 50%. And so then through a process of back propagation, it starts to adjust the multiple neurons. Each neuron is actually a simple math equation that are in layers to slowly get closer and closer to the right answer. And each time it adjusts it, it's trying to minimize an error function so that it's closer to the right answer. And after doing that 50,000 times, the computer learns to read an ECG to determine if there's left ventricular dysfunction. And it turns out it's a very powerful tool for doing that. Um, the you know, if you think of like a treadmill test, the area under the curve, the way we measure the test strength, it's a 0.85, a BNP could be a 0.7 to a 0.8. This test, the ability of the computer to read an ECG and say left ventricular dysfunction is present is a 0.92. So very powerful. And the thing is, we don't know what it's reading. You know, maybe Dr. Aitia could give us a better sense of, of why that is.
1: Yeah, I think that's always a bit concerning, uh, disconcerting to those of us that have heard about this and maybe don't have as deep an understanding as you just described, but I would love to hear Dr. Atiyah's uh, description of what that um, neural network is that we don't really understand.
0: Sure, and you use the term uh, concern. I think about it more with the opportunity because when we are able to use data only To teach these networks. And we did exactly as Dr. Friedman said. We just gave it two groups and said, what differentiate between those two groups? In the past, we used to build model by extracting human-selected features. You would say, this is the QRS width, this is the PR interval, this is the RR interval. And you take all of these features that physicians, experts know how to read and try to get an equation out of it. So you can understand it But then you're also limited to things that humans were able to do themselves. In this case, we just feed it. And by iterating, the model is able to extract features that we maybe uh, never thought of, or we can't even describe in words. So there is some concern, but the way to mitigate that concern is by doing many validation studies. So one of the things for the ejection fraction model that we've done is we took that model and we uh, selected groups based on race, on ethnicity, on age and sex. And we showed that it works well for all of these groups on patients that the, ne- the model have never seen before. So the way to mitigate it concerned by external validation, but then you're also able to teach the computers things that we as humans cannot do. And it's not magic. Presumably there are multiple small non-linear
2: changes in it may be segments we don't even have names for. That if humans could remember the patterns from 100,000 ECGs, we would see those patterns too, but they're just not big enough, or important enough, or massive enough for us to form it, and it doesn't fit into our textbooks.
1: Well, we all learn that the mnemonic, you know, rate, rhythm, axis, and then you look at each of the waveforms and right, and go right. through that, and and you know, those are the things we really pay attention to on every ECG. But if you have a computer that's trying to look for tiny variation. In the EKG, you could imagine that they could pick up different things that we would, we might have overlooked or we might just not even be able to see.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure that if you ask experts, I know that there are experts that can look at an ECG and maybe guess the patient's sex, maybe guess the patient. They just by looking at hundreds of thousands of them, but most people cannot do it. But by showing neural networks, hundreds of thousands or millions of ECGs, they're able to extract the same patterns that if we had the time, we can extract as well.
1: Perfect. Well, that's that was a very helpful description of how AI ECG works for low ejection fraction, but your study actually took it uh, to the 12 lead model, and now you're looking at the Apple Watch. Can you just describe for us, uh, Dr. Friedman, what the Apple Watch study was and how you what, what you were looking for, how you ran the study, and maybe a little bit about your outcomes.
2: The key concept was, since we can extract all this information from a 12-lead ECG, can we make it massively scalable by doing it from a watch ECG, from a wearable? Then people don't have to go to a clinic. You can do it at home. There's you know, a, a, a whole slew of opportunities. It's so easy to acquire. We selected the Apple Watch only because Apple made the ECGs available in HealthKit. Apple was not involved in the study in any way. They didn't provide technical support or any additional facilitation of the study. In fact, we informed them of it when it was done. The Department of Cardiovascular Medicine, in partnership with the Center for Digital Health at Mayo Clinic, created this study. The Center for Digital Health, or CDH, built an app. And what that app did was, for someone who has the Mayo Clinic patient app and an iPhone, they received an email. And the email said, would you like to be part of the study? And if they said yes, then they received another email with a consent form. So it told them, here's what we'll do with your data, all the usual stuff. The app did a couple of things. First, it made sure the data was secure and private, because we're talking about health information. Second, it made it easy to collect. It would remind people, if they agreed to participate, every two weeks, you want to do a download. And then if they hit a button, all the watch ECGs that they would have stored on their phone would be transmitted. As you know, when you record an Apple Watch ECG, you're wearing the watch. You put your finger on the crown. That's one electrode. The back of the watch is on your wrist. That's the other electrode. It's essentially a lead one ECG, right arm to left arm. Your arms are acting as volume conductors. So it stores 30 seconds of lead one. That was all sent in, and from that, we could process it. Because it's remote, in a span of five months, we collected data from roughly 2,500 patients from 46 states. 11 countries, and that data comprised 125,000 ECGs. So very motivated, very engaged group. they had all been seen at Bayo Clinic at one time, but patients could be anywhere. And then um, one of the study questions we asked was, could you use that ECG to determine whether or not left ventricular dysfunction is present? And the short answer was, Yes, in a subset of patients, just over 400 who had an echocardiogram done within two weeks of when they happened to transmit a watch ECG, we ran the analysis on the watch ECG and the area under the curve was just under 0.9. So we lose about 0.88, 0.89. So we lose a little bit of power because we only have one lead and it's from a watch, but not much, suggesting this could be a very potent way to monitor people, perhaps who are getting chemotherapy or at risk or other high risk
1: groups um, just from their homes. Oh, that's amazing. Really fantastic. And uh, really does show the um, power of, of numbers, I guess. But it was only a, a one, one lead EKG that's available on the Apple Watch. Is that correct? Or is it two leads? One lead. And so, you know, maybe I could um, field this question to Dr. Atiyah. How did you have to change that 12 lead model down to a one lead model in order to accommodate this kind of a, a study?
0: And that's a great question, because there are many differences between the ECG would record in a clinic than the one a patient would record by themselves. The obvious one is it's only a single lead. So you have about 10% of the information uh, of the eight independent lead we record in clinic. But more than that, when you record an ECG at the clinic, it's done by a professional. The skin is prepped and cleaned. The patient is laying supine. If the ECG is noisy, they record another one. and don't even know that there was a noisy ECG. While our Apple Watch, I have one, I record it in in very odd position. I might be on my couch or on my treadmill or something like that. So the ECG quality itself is very bad. In addition, Apple to mitigate that, smooths away a lot of the information to make it look good. So you might lose some of the high frequency information that the network might learn during its training. So what we had to do is we took our original derivation cohort 35,000 patients we used to train the model on and synthetically made the ECGs look like an Apple watch. We only took read one, we used the median beat so it's a single heartbeat that represents the whole 10 seconds in the 12 bit, 30 seconds in the Apple watch and we filter it to look visually like an Apple watch. In that way when you retrain the model, it only learned features that, or patterns that will be available in the Apple Watch actual recording. We retrained our model, and then we used the patients from our Apple Watch study to validate. None of the patients that were in the Apple Watch study were used to train it, just to make sure the the network didn't memorize anything and to make sure it's an external validation set. And then we took each Apple Watch ECGs ECG within one month from the clinically indicated echocardiogram and fed it into the model. You can think about it as a a model that can read handwritten text, right? If you train it on text from books, printed fonts, and then you want to read handwritten text, you would have to do some adaptation. The letters don't look the same. And that's kind of what we've done with this Apple Watch
1: study. Well, that's a really fascinating uh, description of how you would go about this. And, and what's amazing to me is that you did not lose the fidelity that you had with the original 12-lead study by much. I guess that's a, a kind of a nice thing, but also a little bit surprising given the fact that our er- earlier conversation was the EKG or the, the neural network, the computer model is actually looking for things that we don't really see. And now we're smoothing at least some of that data off off. Uh, which is really quite surprising to my simple way of understanding this. It's very surprising. And um, I, I don't think we can expect it to work that way for all models.
2: Some may depend more on different leads. Some may need some of that higher frequency information. But there has been a robustness for the low ejection fraction model that has been impressive both on leads, body position, populations, country of origin. So um, it was very encouraging to see that because it is such an important metric for
0: us in cardiovascular medicine. I think it's a very important topic that all the validations we've done, including the age and sex, the watch validation, have to be done for each of these models. You can say this works well for the low EF model, it works well on all AICG. That's why these validation studies in real life are very important for implementation.
1: The Apple Watch right now, I think, is, you know, only really validated, as my understanding, to detect atrial fibrillation, at least if you read the Apple fine print. What do you think the next steps will be for your team? Uh, maybe I'll pose this to both of you and you can decide uh, who takes it first.
0: As Dr. Friedman mentioned, we have an AI dashboard that allows clinicians to see all the patients' 12-lead ECG directly from the EMR within a single click. You go into the patient's record, you click one button, you see all the 12-lead ECG and their AI scores. We added to that dashboard a new button called mobile ECGs that now if the patient uploaded Apple Watch ECG, they can go and look for these uh, tracing. So if a patient calls in or comes to a clinic and says, I had symptoms at that day or that day, The the provider can go in and see immediately the ECG that was done. So I think that's the probably the first step we would want to do. We want to make it available for all of our patients outside of this research. A second thing is, as you mentioned, there are many other AI models that we would want to validate. We have the atrial fibrillation during normal sinus rhythm. Apple Watch can detect atrial fibrillation only if it's present during the recording. We've developed a model that allows you to know based on a normal sinus rhythm if the patients had or will have in the uh, near-time future AF. And we had even models that are non-cardiac, like liver sources, so uh, pulmonary hypertension. So it's it's really a lot of opportunities to use this data set. Dr. Friedman? Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right.
2: And when you think about it, the, the main reason you'd want something on a watch or mobile form factor instead of the 12-lead, which is a little more rigorously collected, as Dr. Atia mentioned, is if it's someone you want to do monitoring on. And when you think about patients with heart failure who are getting medications, that you want to know if the ejection fraction is getting better, you want to know if they're hyperkalemic. Well, it turns out there's an AI tool that screens for hyperkalemia from an ECG, not surprising, right? Because that's a classic finding of hyperkalemia, our ECG abnormalities, but the AI makes it look far more precise. So we're better able to determine whether it's present than The severe abnormalities required before a human can pick it up. And at that point, it's pretty far along. So I I see in the future, there'll be additional prospective clinical trials validating their role in clinical medicine. Those have been done for a number of the 12 lead algorithms, which are currently being reviewed by the Food and Drug Administration, will likely be available within a year, more broadly because of, of that process. And I think we need to do the same with the watch and other manufacturers' devices so that we can identify where it may make the most sense, how we can best help patients stay healthy, stay out of the hospital, and come to see us when they need to before things are too far along, whether it's someone getting chemotherapy at home, and instead of getting an echocardiogram every three months, they can check a watch ECG every day, make sure potassium isn't high, make sure ejection fraction isn't low, whether it's a pregnant woman, because although peripartum cardiomyopathy, as you know, is uncommon, it can be devastating for two young patients. So you know there are a number of use cases where this this sort of ability to monitor uh, and and truly it's screening and monitoring, and I think we would then lead to more definitive tests such as an echocardiogram that would
1: then guide medical therapy. It's all very fascinating. Are you um, is your team at liberty to discuss what other disease processes you might be looking at, or is that still proprietary-type data?
2: <laughs> the short answer is everything, but, uh, <laughs> but as, as you're probably aware, there have been a number of publications already on amyloid heart disease, uh, an area that you're quite expert in, and which is, as you know, often underdetected. and the AICG is a very powerful predictor, often years before it's otherwise suspected. Dr. Atia mentioned cirrhosis. Uh, So there are non-cardiac diseases, Uh, frailty and uh, physiologic age. So to determine is someone a good candidate for a TAVR procedure or some other surgical procedure, there may be a role in that area. Valvular heart disease, of course, is an area of huge interest where there are published algorithms demonstrating um, benefits. So I think within the cardiovascular disease space, arrhythmias, stroke, structural abnormalities will, uh, there's a lot of room to further develop. In the non-cardiac space, there'll be a couple of others as well.
1: Yeah. Well, it's just, uh, it's a whole brand new field that people like me that were trained many eons ago have a hard time wrapping our head around, but this has been really informative. And uh, are there any summary points that either of the two of you would like to make? Dr. Atiyah, maybe I'll start with you.
0: Sure. First, uh, you know, it's uh, we could have And we could not have done it without our colleagues in the Center of Digital Health who helped us create the app and and reach out to patients, asking them if they want to contribute their their data. It was a lot of effort. Plus, patients were really engaged, which I think is a very interesting finding. We were kind of worried about patients using the app once and stop uh, using it after they consented and downloaded. And we followed up and we noticed patients are using it every other week for the uh, beginning of the study, almost to the end of it. The majority use it more than five times. And we've seen even an interesting finding was that as the patients got older, they actually used it more to update their provider to send more ECGs. So that was also very nice to see that patients, even though we kind of have maybe a biased old thinking that younger patients, younger people might use these variables more, we see patients that are really engaged and want to contribute data, that will hopefully affect their health. That's a very nice finding of the study.
1: Yeah, that is very interesting because one of the concerns I've always had about practicing in the digital space uh, with older patients is that they might be reluctant, and I'm sure there still are some, but reluctant, to engage in these types of activities and the patient portal, but we've seen pretty much just the opposite for the vast majority of people, which is really a nice learning, and I think that's probably a teaching point from this whole conversation.
2: Yeah, and so Dr. Atia appropriately underscored how important it is for patients, and I'll say for clinicians as well, for physicians. I think, you know, you mentioned how this is uh, all new, but in fact, these have all been developed with people who are subject matter experts in valvular heart disease, in traditional medicine. And this will be a tool that we use like a stethoscope or an echocardiogram, but the need to understand medicine and interact with patients won't change. If anything, it will make us better because it will alert us to potential things that are otherwise concealed and thus make us better clinicians, but still we then have to evaluate and treat accordingly. And uh, you know, my, my hope is that by detecting conditions early, new therapies can be introduced earlier. And Really help. It'll be a quantum leap in the practice of medicine. I think all of need to have some familiarity with it, but not really understand the details of how it works. Like any tool, like an echo.
1: So if we detect disease earlier, we can intervene earlier and hopefully avoid some of the untoward complications that we are we dread, such as stroke from atrial fibrillation, which is a really nice um, part of this whole process and discussion. Yeah, that's the hope. Well, it's a very hopeful conversation. I've really enjoyed speaking with both of you about the topic of AI ECG, how to detect heart disease and specifically around using wearables and how the first Apple Watch study is really going to contribute to the next quantum leap in data collection. So thank you very much for your time and all of our audience, thank you for listening in. And we appreciate you being part of the